is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Joe Turner, who researches Corelli. We're going to look at what we might have got wrong, what we might have covered, anything that might be added to our discussion of Corelli. Uh, you may hear some piano music in the background because we're using <laughs> some music practice rooms and though they are somewhat soundproofed, it's not perfect. But it's quite pleasant piano music. So. Yes, it really is. Yeah. Um, so, Joe, you're in your Second year part-time. Yes, first year proper. Yeah, <laughs> of uh, studying Corelli. And I wondered if you could tell us what, what got you interested in her. I was researching for an essay for my master's degree, which I completed at the University of Leicester. And I just came across a random reference to famous Victorian novelist Marie Corelli. And I remember having this moment of absolute panic. The imposter syndrome kicked in and I thought, who is this woman? Um, so I did a quick search on the internet. And I quickly discovered that she was an author of popular fiction, and that explained a huge amount. My undergraduate studies had been very much based in literature of the canon, and we were only just exploring sort of different novels um, and sort of authors from the 19th century. So I decided to download a couple of her books, and I read The Sorrows of Satan, which Courtney discussed oh, yeah. in your episode. And after Middle March, which we'd done the week before, it was like going from the sublime to the ridiculous. But I think there was something about the page-turning quality of her work and how it was so wildly different. It got me intrigued, and I think that's why I went on to write my thesis on her for my master's and why I wrote a PhD proposal to continue my studies. That's great. I think it's really nice how, like, that sounds quite similar to how I came across both Francis Trollope's. Mm. It's, it's almost entirely by accident. It's so nice when it's yes. serendipitous like that. It is, and the interest hasn't gone away. The more I find out about her, the more I want to write about her. So I suppose that's rather good at this stage. And uh, so you're... Research is specifically on Corelli as an adapter, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, my title is Anxieties of Influence and I'm reading Dickens in Marie Corelli, which might sound quite incongruent to both scholars of Dickens and Corelli, but there is material there. And I'm looking very much at how mid-19th century literary traditions are translated into the fantasy Eccler, rather than looking forward. There's an awful lot of criticism, brilliant criticism, by people like Rita Falsky and um, Annette Federica, where they take Corelli and look at her as um, an early example of modernism, sort of that feminine yeah. sublime going forward, whereas I'm looking back and looking at influences from the mid-19th century, so it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, because like, people try to make these like set-in-stone distinctions of this is when modernism yes. starts and this... Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't really work in practice. It doesn't. I mean, it's incredibly interesting, particularly when mm. you think that um, Corelli's uh, books were adapted for the early cinema, so you can on, on YouTube catch The Sorrows of Satan, the film version, which is amazing. But I'm very, very interested in how that popular fiction and that popular tradition translates going through, and I think Marie very much felt she was an heir to that tradition. Oh, I've, okay. brought, yeah, I've brought you along a treat. Yes, <laughs> we're going to start off with a poem that Corelli wrote 
so this is is it specific is it explicitly about Eric or is it Well, I really loved your interpretation of Eric. I think you really got him down from Ransom's biography and I love the fact that you were sort of naming him as the villain of the piece and he absolutely is and I know Teresa Ransom um, very much picks up on that as do other biographers. Mm. But a Christmas greeting was something that Corelli paid towards having published. It's a very special book. It's limited print. It's ever so pretty and ornate. Christmas 1901 and it contains the most bizarre Christmas content you can imagine. There's the Devil's Motor that I think you looked at yes. when you were over in America which is not really a Christmassy story, I think. You'd probably, no, not quite. <laughs> unless you compare Santa and his sleigh to Satan rolling <laughs> in on his car. Um, but it also contains this poem, and it's called Forgiveness. So you might think, hmm, Christian sentiment of forgiveness. Yeah. But bearing in mind what you know of Eric Eleanor, I'll let you decide. I'll just read a small section. Forgive, yes, but I cannot forget. For the deathless soul is strong, and God himself can never efface its memory of a wrong. And though you are dead and laid in your grave, and the evil you wrought is done, though... Your lips are cold in the covering mould, yet your dastard lie lives on. Forgive, yes, but I cannot forget the merciless, murderous thrust of your treacherous hand with its backward blow when you killed my whole life's trust. Craving my pity, you broke my heart and slandered my name and fame. And the Christian creed, I forgive you, coward, let the pardon be your shame. Oh. Well, I don't know what you think. What do you think? I love think? that. <laughs> That's, yeah. Cutting. Oh. Cutting, but it's Cutting. also kind of like... Being the bigger person. It is being the bigger person. Yeah. And he spread all these terrible, terrible lies about being the author of her work and uh, talk, talked about her in such derogatory terms and she only found out after he died. And, and she spent all of her life supporting him and paying yes. for his things to be published and Absolutely. fighting for Absolutely. him. <laughs> yes, I love that. I love that she was able to... Well, I think it's about Eric. I'm sure you'd probably uh, agree. I mean, yes, <laughs> I can't see... It. I mean, I know I was kind of primed, but I think even if you hadn't mentioned that to me, I would have put that as... Yes. Yes. Well, when you were talking, I thought of that. So there you go. There's a special one just for you. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. I think there was something else um, that I wanted to bring to your attention about Eric, and it's something that Annette Federico writes in her book, Idol of Suburbia. And it's a slightly more dark and sinister interpretation of her relation, his relationship with Marie. Um, and it involves an interpretation of... Virginia Woolf's um, reaction to having a photograph taken and it's based on a, a literary theory that because uh, Woolf had experienced sort of sexual advancement and she was she didn't want to be photographed because she felt it was a violation of herself Federico sort of insinuates that that's how Marie felt about having um, Eric around and portraiture and it was why she didn't want to have a photograph taken and it's quite an interesting theory and I'd recommend if you wanted to look a little oh, bit further yeah. into Eric's misdemeanors definitely getting hold of oh, that. Someone written a PhD on Eric's misdemeanours. Uh, I should did imagine it would be quite a, a bountiful topic. Have, have you yes. had his poetry? It's terrible. No, I haven't. It really is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have a copy of The Love Letters of a Violinist, and it's... Um... Yeah, so one of the... I know we talked before Courtney and I recorded the episode, and mm -hmm. I kind of talked to you and said, what should we what should we cover? Yes. And I think you said the, the sexuality aspect and yes. the people... Um, trying to downplay her sexuality. I thought you covered that incredibly well. Thank I you. I thought that was really well done. I thought um, Courtney's interpretation of her bisexuality was absolutely on point. I really enjoyed hearing her talking about that. Yeah, because I think that's what we were talking about. People, like, they may not have used the words, the terms themselves, no. they didn't exist, but no. at the same, by the same measure, it's reductive to say, oh, absolutely, she was this or that. But yes. it's also, just as it's reductive to say she was definitely bisexual or definitely a lesbian. Yes. It's even more so to say she was definitely heterosexual and Bertha was just a pal. Yeah, I mean, I think, for me, without question, Bertha was the love of her life. And I think you spoke about the entwined initials at Mason Croft, but there's that motto that's underneath it, which is Amor Vincit, love conquers. Yeah. And that's what Bertha wrote on her dedication wreath to Marie when she didn't attend the funeral. So that was obviously their, I don't know, their motto or their, their general belief in each other's friendship. And I just think... 
that when Marie met Arthur Seven, it was maybe that twin soul thing. He was another artist, and I maybe she yeah. she felt drawn to him in that way. And obviously, it didn't come to pass. Brian Masters is scathing about the whole situation in his 1978 biography. He basically says that he's an embarrassment. She's an embarrassment to him, and it's it's all put across in a very different way. But of course, we've only got one side of the letters. Yeah. We can't see. So I always think that's a fascinating aspect. I'd love to go over and have a look at them. I think it'd be an amazing thing. Oh, I love looking at letters. Yes. Have you looked at many for your studies? Yeah, I've I've looked at quite a few for. Francis Eleanor. Well, mm. a lot of them I've looked at quite a few, but it's mm. just so fascinating to learn about. Yeah, I think, and that's the difficulty. Under instruction, Bertha burned so much of Marie's yeah. correspondence and work after she died. We don't even have the original drafts of the novels because Marie only wanted presenting what was perfect. What was, what was perfect. And I think there's um, an article that was in the Bookman written by John Adcock where she actually talks about her process and how she writes. So she writes this terribly messy first draft. It's then cleaned up sometimes by Bertha with Marie's help and it would be cleaned up and then there would be a copy that would be sent off to the publisher and I think it's quite sad that that's probably all we've got to look at rather than seeing her marginalia or her thoughts yeah. or how she shifted stories round and I think that also adds to the illusion that she almost vomit drafted these stories and got them out of her I don't think that's necessarily true I know people think that she's sentimental and gushing but I think actually there would have been a process there and it would be so interesting to know how she went about it. Yeah, and it's kind of doing her, her a disservice yeah. to say, like, oh, she just came out with this straight away. Yeah, but there's that, always that um, story of Barbara Cartland, the romantic novelist, isn't she? She would just dictate mm, a story yes. and that would be it, it would just go. And I think Corelli very much has that sort of persona, and it's absolutely not true. She was incredibly hardworking. I think that's one thing that all of her biographers can agree on. She would get up every day and put the hours in and work to create her books. I, I can imagine it's doubly frustrating looking at Corelli and Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> Both big fans of burning letters. Yeah, it, it is frustrating because I'd love to hear more of her voice. I think we are fortunate that we've got books like Free Opinions and where she's written sort of her own diatribes about things. You definitely know what her formal opinion is that she's putting out in the world. And occasionally there are letters that come available where you can see that she's written to her fans and things. I think they're fascinating, you know, giving her advice. Yeah. And it's usually good Christian spiritual advice, but I'd love to know more, as we all would. And I think that's the problem around the origin of her birth story, isn't it? We just haven't yeah. got enough information. Yeah, and we actually, I, I mentioned in one of the episodes, your theory of her birth. <laughs> oh, I wish, I wish it was my theory. It's actually um, some of Teresa Ransom's investigation. Um, there was a baby girl born on the 27th of April called Isabella Mary Mills uh, down in London. Um, so just a few days away, I think you've mentioned that there was a, a yeah. difference in birth. Um, but actually the theory that Ransom um, just touches upon, and it's just in her notes, is that, um, er, that Charles McKay could be Marie Corelli's grandfather because his daughter Rosa went over to Italy. There was also speculation that she may have been involved with Signor Corelli, the opera singer who had performed at one of McKay's theatres, um, and that Rosa's, Rosa had died in 1855, the year that Marie had been born. So there's just that sense, and I think um, Ransom actually quotes a poem of McKay's where a line is scribbled out about a daughter's daughter, and it's replaced with a young maiden. And oh. I think she thinks the poem's about Marie, and I think she thinks the daughter's daughter suggests it's a granddaughter. So it's, to my mind, it actually makes Marie more truthful when she speaks about having Scottish and Italian parentage. That would actually have been yeah, true. Yeah, that's accurate. And when you think about how um, she was adopted in with Ellen Mills, it would make sense that she was then brought in gradually to the family. And Brian Masters also talks about how she was referred to by McKay as a niece when he wasn't quite sure how to introduce her to yeah. his acquaintances. So again, it just speaks to me of just something else. And I think, in some respects, it... it it appeals to me because it's more truthful. And I'd like to think yeah. she was actually more truthful because she was quite truthful in her writing, truthful about her feelings. Is it possible she was truthful about her origins? Yeah, because it seems like sometimes there's a, like, there's a desire to construct her as this person who constructed herself yes. and is very false in the way she presents herself. But mm. it's... 
Yes. Oh, I don't, I don't doubt for a second she was very good. And Jenny Scott's written a brilliant article recently for Victoriographers, I think I spoke to you about it, about uh, yes. Corelli's self-fashioning in orphanhood. I thoroughly recommend it. It's a really good analysis of Corelli's just brilliant work within the publishing industry to get herself noticed. And I just, yeah, I really applaud the idea that, that Scott sort of uh, conveys in the article. It's fantastic. Yeah, and I think... Um... Like I want to clarify that there's sometimes an idea that it's duplicitous for her to yes. pretend to be someone else, where it's yeah. just a reality of publishing and everyone does that. Yes, and she was an absolute trailblazer, wasn't she? Yeah. I think she was the original networker as well. I mean, the, the time when she went over to Homburg and Bertha had suggested, mm. you know, the, the idea that Bertha suggests that she goes on holidays and, oh, she just happens to be having dinner and the Prince of Wales is behind her. And there's an introduction. And again, when she wants to try and curry favour with Edmund Yates, she just happens to be in Marseille, find out he's in Cannes and just trots over there to go and see him. And obviously she does incredibly well making his acquaintance and convincing him she's not this terrible woman novelist that he imagines with black greasy hair. And I think it's a fantastic description. But um, I think she is very, very good at understanding situations and manipulating them to her advantage. And I think that's probably something you'd be quite familiar with because you look at publishing, don't you? And how yes. women interact with that industry. So that's something we should talk about more. Yes, we should. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's a lot... Um... You know, this is a, an idea forming straight from it. But there's a, like, there's a real tendency to frame when women do those things mm. as it being duplicitous and a woman's supposed to be... Self-advertisement, like, yeah. Yeah, and it's in the same way as when, you know, when Elliot uses a pseudonym, everyone's like, oh, what's she doing? Why is she doing this? Mm. But when when anyone else does, it's... Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, when Samuel Clemens uses the name Mark Twain, no one goes, oh, what's he doing? Why is he trying to deceive us? No, absolutely. And you're right, there is just that. It's, it's a, a degrading way of looking at it, isn't it? Where actually we should be championing her and championing her entrepreneurial spirit. And I brought you along a couple of things today yes. to look at, which is sort of the, part of the Marie Corelli fascinating. Because I don't... Did you know about Trilby hats when Trilby came out? And that was a fashion because of Trilby. And obviously is this another of, thing that she started? No, this is George de Maurier. So oh. the, the, around the 1890s, there starts to be a consumer culture around books and around sort yes. of souvenirs and things. So I brought you along the Marie Corelli birthday book. Yes. And it just happens to be a handy, everyday quote of the year, quote for Corelli. Oh. Uh, there was a calendar as well. I've not seen that. That's held at the British Library, and that's supposed to be fantastic. But maybe, yeah, you know, you, you and Courtney could find your amazing uh, quote for the day. Yes. But it's her early novels. It goes up to about 1901. And there's obviously just a piece of wisdom every day from Corelli. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of my treasures. And whoever had it obviously didn't have many friends because there's only about three entries written in. So oh. I'm <laughs> there we go. Someone was born on. Francis Alice Day, January 5th. And what she got a quote from Ardas. That was mm. Gladstone's favourite one. Pardon ignorance, but not hypocrisy. <laughs> Quite good, isn't it? Yes. She's got two quotes. She's she also got ambitious is per, ambition is perennial, but love it is the aloe of the flower that blossoms, but once in a hundred years. Ah, that's the murder of Delicia. That's one of the books I first read, and it's not mm. a murder mystery. I think that's what I was anticipating when I downloaded it. I was thinking, oh my gosh, she's written a murder mystery too, because mm. she's famous for writing across genres. But actually, it's the destruction of a female novelist by her caliber husband. It's fantastically written. It's really real page turner that one. Let's see. So for today, we're recording this on January seventh. And the quote of the day is, the difference of race, the difference of creed, the difference of law, these part man and woman more than God and nature would ever part them. I think that's that is actually quite incredibly apropos. <laughs> it's Bertha and Marie. Hmm. <laughs> it's just a nice piece of book history. And I've also brought you the yeah. tiny, tiny thoughts from Marie Corelli, which again has a lovely portrait of her in. There we go, that's obviously a true-to-life image of Marie Corelli, as we all know. Oh, yes. She's adopted uh, images. But again, that's got quotes all the way through it as well, and it's really handbag size. You could take that in your little purse. It's tiny, isn't it? It it's... really is. It's about three inches by two inches. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say it's not even... A6 is probably no, bigger than this. It's... it's absolutely tiny. 
And someone's cut out a poem and put it in the front, so that's quite a nice thing. Yeah, someone's cut out birthday wishes. <laughs> it's a dire poem. I showed it to Sarah Parker, our supervisor, <laughs> and she thought it was hilarious. But mm. I saw Courtney's very impressive collection, so I thought I'd bring you over some books today. Um, just yes, because you have a pretty impressive collection yourself, don't you? I have. I've been collecting for about five years now, and I've got early or first editions of all of her novels and works. And so what I bought you today, just more of the pamphlets and other literature. Mm. This is an American version, so Courtney would appreciate that. That's my wonderful wife with a fantastic illustration on the front of it. Um, and I brought that along with Woman or Suffragette Ooh. because... Um, Teresa Ransom, she shows an excerpt from All's Well with England, which Corelli wrote at the very end of her life, and it shows Corelli changing her position on women's suffrage, because throughout her life, she actually wrote diatribes about women having the vote. She was very much a feminist in terms of um, women being able to have education and going out into the world and having professions, but when it came to the vote and politics, Corelli was adamant it just shouldn't occur. So you've got votes for women. <laughs> it's a shrill cry of a number of apparently discontented ladies who sometimes seem to have missed the best of life. How lovely. <laughs> and then she talks about, um, I think it's Miss Pankhurst and a hosepipe. Yeah. That it should come to hosepipes, heaven forfend. <laughs> so obviously that's the suffragettes are really yes. uh, getting on Corelli's nerves at that point. But she was absolutely vitriolic, She, if you some, yeah. of her, some of her work. But then you've got My Wonderful Wife, which was written in 1899, which is just a brilliant satire. And we study it here at Loughborough, actually, and um, it's about Honoria Max, who she lectures yes. on the, the advantageous nature of wearing men's apparel and embarrasses her husband. But it's just a brilliant, brilliant book. But the portrayal of the, the woman in it is far too sympathetic for someone that yes. is against the new woman. So again, it's that lovely contradiction you get with Corelli. Because I think this is not maybe just in the people that I research, but it's not that unusual no. that people would be anti-suffrage. And it's not just because they they have internalised misogyny, they have very complex yes. thoughts and feelings about the vote. Yes. And they might be thinking, you know, there are other more practical things, rights that women need to have before they have the vote. Yes. And I think for Corelli, she very much believed that the feminine was important in life. So she believed in women having certain special skills. So for her, the vote wasn't necessarily important because she believed women could influence men to vote the way that they would have wanted yes. anyway. So I think it's an interesting position, but it is one that changed and it's one that she accepts the war changed for everybody when women were out working. And I think it shows a really big person that can come round after they've spent years writing yes. all sorts of um, really interesting bits of work. And then you actually think she's changed her mind. She's changed her mind. It's a big person. Yeah. I like that about her. Well, I know one of the other things that you said that we should talk about, and we did touch on, but maybe you have more to say about, oh. is the, the construction of Corelli's image and her kind of oh. early proto-adoption of Photoshop. And oh, yes, the, I mean, the, the images in both um, Ransom's book and Federico's are just phenomenal. And Bertha had her images changed too. They did them just for themselves. They went along to the photographer, got dressed up in quite fancy dress, and then had all of their sort of crow's feet and laughter lines erased. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating thing. It's like it's like Instagram. It's like a filter yeah. bit put up these things. But Corelli always owned an age that was between ten and twenty years younger than she was, and because she was so very short, she could get away with it. Nobody sort of um, doubted her, I suppose. But yeah, the Instagram images, I yeah. think, they're just brilliant. And when we showed them to the students, people can't quite believe that that's something of the eighteen nineties to think that someone would actually go that far. Plus, she always used to stand on a step yeah. to try and make herself appear taller. I love that. And get Bertha to take the picture from below. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think well, it's, again, it's a part of that amazing article by Jenny Scott. It's about that self-fashioning, that very fierce protectionism she had of her image and controlling where and when it was distributed. So she would say, this is a true picture of me, but it yeah. was a doctored picture. But for, I think for Corelli, that was her literary persona. And I think she thought Marie Corelli looked like that. And I think you could almost, again, yeah. argue for her amazing ability to manipulate the publishing industry. Yeah, and a kind of separation of personal and professional. Absolutely. 
you used Ransom, didn't you? Because um, you wrote biographies about, was it Francis yes, Trollope? Yes, it's Francis Milton Trollope, yeah, she wrote the biography of that. And I think we had a conversation, well. didn't we, about how Ransom is quite um, free with how she uses her literary sources and her sort of quotable sources, if you like. Did you find yeah. the same thing for Francis Trollope? Yes, there's a lot of, that's fascinating, but I want to know where it came from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a specific um, instance where Ransom uses um, an unpublished manuscript uh, that was found after Corelli had died, and she says it's Corelli's journal, and it really isn't. It's a story that Corelli's left unpublished. Oh. Now, Bertha must have left it lying around. Bertha's made a conscious decision for it not to be destroyed, so it, in some respects, maybe it is useful. Um, but I'm I'm just always very dubious as to when reading. Sometimes there'll be a passage from Open Confession, for instance, and it's almost laid out as being Corelli's thought. And I think we have to, as scholars, be very careful to differentiate, don't we, between what is yes. the author's intention as fiction and what is their written thought. Would you agree? Is that the same? Yes, yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah. I mean, as much as we've been saying looking at letters is fascinating, we don't, there's a tendency to kind of overestimate how important those views are or how much the public persona would have reflected those views. Very true, very true. Um, and I uh, think, oh, sorry, no, no, no. <laughs> um, is... I think um, Brian Masters, his really misogynistic uh, book, is really interesting to read alongside Ransom because Ransom obviously champions Corelli. Masters is out to really not destroy her, but to really denigrate her. So to read their different interpretations of the letters actually helps you come to quite an interesting point of view. And I think that's where Annette Federico then comes in and puts in a sort of another layer of interpretation. But Ransom gets something wrong that is very much part of. Corelli folklore and I've seen it appear in scholarly articles going through oh, as no. I've been doing my reading and it's just a simple fact and I don't know whether you saw that there was a Corelli city in America it's usually written yeah. on the front page as a fact it never happened <laughs> um, in Coates and Warren Bell's biography in 1901 they talk about an ardent set of Marie Corelli fans that wanted to um, have a city named after her um, next to the Arkansas River and they put together a very fancy prospectus and it was shortly after Ardarth had been published it was quite she was quite big at the time yeah. um, but it never got past the planning stages so uh, there was I looking on Google Maps trying to find Corelli City thinking that would Where be somewhere it? to go and actually yeah. looking back it isn't there but it, it's just part of that folklore that's evolved and I think that's the thing as well we quite often look at these biographies as set in stone whereas yes. sometimes we have to go back and just double check facts and yeah absolutely because I think there are um <laughs> you know there are these mysteries that just get repeated again yes. and again yes so yeah but beware be... Corelli City doesn't exist next time you go over to the States you won't find it I was going to say you're laughing because you saw my Twitter yesterday <laughs> no I didn't oh I had a bit of a meltdown yesterday because um there's a book that Francis a, book, a short story that Francis Ellen Trollope wrote called Ketchin's Caprices and it's repeatedly attributed to Anthony because one, well, it was a couple of biographers, so it was a husband and wife biographer, Doctor and Mrs., because uh, of course it can't be Doctor and Doctor. No. Um, yeah, it started this rumour that Anthony wrote that, and then even at the time there's people, there's a review from, I think it was 58 that this biography came out, and there's a review in um, Trollopiana saying, he definitely did not write this. <laughs> and, like, and they've tried to attribute something else that's just really badly written to him. Oh my goodness. But yeah, I think that's the... And it's especially difficult when you're looking at lesser-studied authors. Yes. Um, which Corelli still very much is. Yes. Of There aren't necessarily all of those facts to find. No. It is quite limited, which makes it easier for the PhD student. And yes. Sure there's only a certain amount of sources to go to. Um, but again, it's just untangling the fine detail and just making sure when you're saying something, you really are saying it and making yes. sure that it's correct. So yeah, there was a bit of a trivia for you there. There's no Corelli city. Because it is... Yeah, it is tricky when you're just going from a... I don't mean this in, to denigrate it, but a popular biography, yeah. just for the simple fact that it doesn't have all of the citations that you would have in an academic no. work, no. it does make it a little bit more difficult. You go, where did this come from? And they say, well, private papers. Yes. 
Yeah, and I think Ransom, to, to be absolutely fair to her, her research is phenomenal, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, I think absolutely. You see what she's been able to go through. I think that's why I said the book is, if you want to know about Corelli's life, it's a really fantastic starting point, and she really does get into the nitty-gritty of the novel. She's not necessarily close reading in the way we would as, as sort of literature scholars, but she's certainly putting in lots and lots of content, so yeah. you do get a real feel for who the woman really was. Yeah, and I think we both, you know, studying <laughs> Corelli and Francis Milton for it. You know, we both would agree. We owe a debt of gratitude to Ransom. We do, because it's a, she paves the way, and yeah. I think that's it. It's something useful that we can go on. And it's because she's produced like <laughs> such useful volumes that we critique it, because if yes. it was bad, we would just write it off. Yes, absolutely. And I blame Coates and Warren Bell. They weren't clear about yes. it in the first place. So these are Corelli's tribute texts, and what's really interesting is that she'd been ill. I think you spoke about Mary Charlebe and the operation when yes. she had a hysterectomy. And she'd been off the scene for a little while. And um, tribute texts were a real thing, obviously. They came into fashion more in the latter half of the 19th century with the Jubilees. And yes. Corelli had missed, obviously, the Diamond Jubilee. So when she came back to writing in 1900, there's obviously um, lots of information about Boy being published and the Master Christian. But she wrote The Greatest Queen in the World. And it's a lovely, lovely book about the Queen Victoria's reign and the empire and whatever. But obviously, within a year, Queen Victoria died. Yes. So Corelli is, again, just a fantastic self-publicist. She manages to wholesale change it to past tense, put a few dear beloveds in there and bang it's ready to go she's got a tribute text literally within a month of queen victoria passing away and they're beautiful little books i mean they're, they're quite ornate. the first one has silk de bleus they're just inside yeah. the the cover there you see beautiful papers which obviously when the next one's rushed out it's they not quite, quite so grand. To... but um it's a lovely little book and she talks about you know what she believes is um with what's not necessarily wrong with England, but what is potentially happened while Queen Victoria's been mourning for Prince Albert. So she mm. thinks that the decadents have had a bit of sway. She talks about the smart set, uh, women smoking, heaven forbid. Um, so it's quite an interesting book. But then what happens when Queen Victoria passes away is there's a real sort of fashion for tribute texts. And Mrs Oliphant's going to get one out, and G.A. Henty's going to get one out, and the publishers have announced it all in the bookman and the press. So Corelli decides that although The Greatest Queen in the World is a cracking book and she's managed to sort of get it out quickly, she wants to have another go so she writes the passing yes. of the great queen in march 1901 and that's an amazing book because in it she almost warns prince albert that he's got to be careful about who he listens to and she takes a real moment to address the country making sure that they realize that it's a, a vulnerable time and they should be thinking mm. about again the decadent smoking women and the smart set so it was a really interesting time because she was coming back to writing and she was very much asserting herself on the public with these texts i just think they're fascinating they are. There's something really, you know, I don't know. I just my eye just caught on this one sentence, <laughs> which on seems very correct. <laughs> Victoria, whose name was Victory, was and will be for all time remembered as a monarch, always victorious. She knew nothing of defeat. <laughs> and she again, she tries to coin how Victoria will be known. So it's the Lady of the Land, the Great mm. Queen, the Mother of the Land, those sorts of things. She's trying to come up with an appellation that's going to suit how people are mourning. But these texts really do encapsulate that moment if you like after Queen Victoria's death and how everyone was feeling and you can imagine there was quite a clamour for them but yes. then there's an amazing sentence in the bookman in April 1901 where they say the demand for Victorian literature has subsided and I'm as Victorian students students of Victorian literature that's a bizarre thing to hear but yes there we go oh, they're fascinating because I was kind of looking at them and knowing less about it going did they put the wrong date on one of those? Well, that's exactly how I bought one in the first place. I bought the 1901 and then yeah. trawling through eight books, as I do um, quite often, I saw 1900 and I thought it was a misprint, so I bought yeah. it and then I realised what had occurred. And like I say, just to change everything to past tense quite quickly, I think, again, it just shows her abilities within the marketplace.
and how kind of savvy she is yes. to yes, I'm going to get out here, get out in front of this. And, <laughs> and again, there's advertisements in the back of the 1900 edition for her novel, the new novel, The Master Christian. Ooh. In the back of the 1901 one, it's removed because obviously it's a little bit insensitive in the wake of yes. the Queen dying to advertise your wares. But in the passing of the Great Queen, because this is Matthew and her publisher. There's a list of uh, Marie Corelli's oh, novels, wow. just in case you haven't collected the whole set. Um, and I again, mean, The Master Christian's in its 150,000 edition. I was going to say, they've gone through so many editions. I mean, I was just looking at the 43rd edition of The Sorrows of Satan. But yeah. yeah, it's wow. amazing. It, absolutely amazing. But again, obviously, she's decided by March 1901 that it's not so distasteful to advertise your wares. Yes. By then, she'd already got her books out and she was very much back in the public eye. And that's a much longer text, isn't it? A much larger text. It's so. larger. It's not as fancy. But again, I presume it's because it was turned around quite quickly and um, the boards that actually hold the book together, are, they're yes. just cheaper, generally yeah. cheaper. And that's the thing about Corelli. They're wonderfully co co collective, actually. I think um, Courtney has yes. actually been able to pick them up in the States, haven't she, for not very much money? I know. She showed me them in person and then I asked her, what, well, without being entirely crass, <laughs> I was like, how much did you pay for these? And she said, she didn't pay... I, I can't remember how much, I'll ask her how much she said, but it was definitely less than $5 for each she, of them. She's incredibly easy to collect, I think, yeah. and particularly if you know what you're looking for as well. I mean, something like the birthday book is very niche and specialist, so I maybe had to yeah. pay over £20 for that one, but most of them were around 5 or £6. You can go on eBay or Books and, and buy them. But again, they're all available as well on archive.org, which is how I started yes. reading them. So there's no excuse for people not to get out there and try no, rather than exactly. And I think um, Courtney's suggestion of The Sorrows of Satan for a first one is an absolute definite. I had a discussion on Twitter with fantastic academic Claire Clark over in... Uh, University College Dublin, and she just said it's um, brilliant, but um, I can't say the word, can I? <laughs> she said it was a swear word, but she said it was brilliant, but a little bit crazy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But it absolutely sums it up. It's an amazing book, and again, you can see why it was translated into early cinema in the way it was, because the tableaus that are created in Courtney explained, there's just this culmination of these amazing tableaus at this mansion house where Satan has sort of constructed these amazing visions for everyone to look at, and I think in the film it just translates brilliantly. Fantastic. I wonder if it's fair to ask you what your favourite Corelli book is. Um, well, at the moment, it's The Strange Visitation of Josiah McNason, because that's what I'm writing on, and that's Corelli's um, version of A Christmas Carol. And when I say version, it's in the loosest sense of the word. Um, <laughs> but um, my favourite's probably Vendetta. I really like that. I'm very much of the mind that um, Corelli's works are divided into sort of loose categories, and there's, there's sort of spiritual and theosophical novels with which The Sorrows of Satan falls into yeah. and there's Ardath and there's The Romance of Two Worlds which is her first book and um, then there's the more biblical texts like Barabbas and The Master Christian but I like the more as Bertha termed them human texts I like the stories that are more society based or historical so I like Vendetta I like The Murder of Delicia I like Boy um, but yeah I would say Vendetta because it's about a man that's essentially buried alive and it's in Italy the cholera epidemic I think you said people oh, go to die in yeah. Italy yes that's exactly where it occurs um, and it's yeah it's a, a rip-roaring tale and it's fantastic and again it's got twists and turns she just knows how to hold her reader and yeah it's a brilliant book because the um the strange visitations is the one where i talked about it before and then i accidentally sent an email to someone you with did. a similar surname you to but you also sent me an amazing link about a film to do yes. sense. because in the strange visitation um, rather than being um, punished by visitations of ghosts there's a goblin that haunts the main character and mm. the final ghost is um sort of replaced by a scene in an operating theater where the man can't move and he's sort of lying on a bed and everyone's talking around him about what they're going to do to him and it reminds yes. you of a film didn't yeah it? after maybe the second time that we met <laughs> i tried to email you saying that that reminded me of the um, I, oh, it's um, oh, I forgot her name. Jessica Alba, the Jessica yes. Alba film, Awake. 
and there's this film about basically she's plotting to steal his <laughs> wealth. But there's a very similar, it's a very silly film. Yes. <laughs> yeah. well, and it's a very silly book. So yes, I think they probably would go hand in hand, but there's lots of material there for me. So I am enjoying The Strange Visitation. And um, yeah, it's a, a Christmas tale, but one that you wouldn't expect. As with everything with Pirelli, you'd never quite expect how it turns out. Yeah, because she's so, I mean... I don't even know if you'd say what genre she writes in. And she, she deliberately set out to not write in any genre. She, when she wrote to Bentley, her publisher, she said that she was determined to write in many different styles and yes. genres. And the only thing I would say is her themes always come through. So she's usually critical of um, French, the French. Um, Kirsten yeah. MacLeod writes brilliantly about um, her francophobia, uh, particularly evident in Wormwood, um, that there's the French education system in The Mighty Atom that she sort of gets out she's always uh, very much against the modern marriage market so she wrote uh, a massive piece in a book along with Lady Jeanne about the marriage market and women being commodities and not marrying for love and obviously in the 1890s there was a shortage of eligible men so I, I presume it was quite a pertinent thing for her to write um, so there's always themes within Corelli that follow through but oh my goodness the way she writes she writes about ancient Egypt in Sicily. Yes. she writes about clergymen in Italy she's always writing about different things and I think that's what's fascinating you pick up a book a bit like The Murder of Delicia and you think I'm pretty sure I know what this yeah. is about and actually it turns out to be something completely different because what I find really interesting and I'm not actually I don't know whether I should admit that I've actually read any of Corelli's work other <laughs> than excerpts um but these repeated storylines about alternate universes. Yes, and that's something that um, Rita Felsky uh, goes into in incredible depth in her chapter in The Gender of Modernity. And that's essentially what she sees as the modern in Corelli, because Corelli always goes to other worlds and other places and aspires to different, different higher statuses, if you like. Um, I think that's what Felsky identifies as being modern, that sense that you can go out of yourself and find something different. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're fascinating books, a romance of two worlds, it would blow your mind, it's amazing. And again, there's a huge amount of modernity in that, she sort of capitalises on electricity and doorbells, which are obviously new technology. Yes. It's, it's fantastic how she's able to incorporate everything that's going on around her and make science and religion work together to make sense, and I think that must have resonated with a huge amount of people at the time. And it's such an interesting kind of inheritance from Mary Shelley that you get yes. all these discussions of science and electricity from the start of the decade and the end of the decade or the start of the next de decade. I'm saying, I mean, century. Yes. I think it's because this decade has started. <laughs> but yeah, these um, kind of through ways of electricity and science from the start of the century and mm. the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th. Yes. I mean, Corelli was initially terrified of telephones, but she ended up opening the first train train telephone. Did you see that? That's an amazing no. thing. Yeah, she's pictured, I think it's Stratford-upon-Avon, it could be wrong, it could be Warwick, but she's actually pictured taking a phone call on the train. So obviously oh, she must have overcome her, her yes. fears. Because I think you spoke about her being papped, didn't you, in your yes. episode? Yes, when they're um, on the gondola in yes. Stratford-upon-Avon. Yes, and um, that's the Daily Mirror. I've actually got a picture, do you want to see it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> there they are. So it's a curious photograph of Miss Marie Corelli. But what happened was they were out on the river and Marie spied the pap as he was about to take her picture and she shouted, Bear, the blanket, the blanket! And Burr <laughs> managed to cover them over. So the picture that was on the front page of Tuesday, May the 23rd, 1905, <laughs> is literally a bloke punting a gondola yes. and uh, two figures being covered over by a blanket. But obviously he verified that it was Marie Corelli and who else would it be on Stratford upon Avon? Who else a gondola and a gondolier on Stratford upon Avon? Yeah. But yeah, fantastic. But yes, I, I love the fact that she was parrot, but of course she was shot at as well. Did you know that story? No. There was a stalker in her garden, a man called Jarvis. Um, he was hiding around in the shrubbery and managed to fire a pistol at the winter garden, terrified Marie and Bertha, but they were in another part of the house. So luckily no harm was done to anyone. 
Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> so was he kind of an ardent fan of the stories? Or? I don't know whether he was a fan, but I know that Marie paid for his treatment. So, oh. so he was arrested and obviously released without charge. And then she went on, as she did, she was incredibly charitable, particularly in Stratford upon Avon. I think you touched upon what she did for the children of the town. She was yes. always paying for things and trophies and awards and things, but actually she paid for him to be treated, which I think is, again, quite a testament to her character. Yes, because we were talking about the Shakespeare yes. debacle. <laughs> debacle, the controversy of Stratford upon Avon, yes. Yeah, I mean, I've got some of those pamphlets and books, and it is a really interesting period. But to think that when you walk around Stratford upon Avon today and you see those buildings, and you know that actually they wouldn't be there if it wasn't for her yes. stroppy nature, shall we say? I just think it's a wonderful thing. She was an early conservationist, and she believed in preserving things, and that's important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think we're both, you know, <laughs> from our research, are very aware of how. You only know about things if they've been preserved somehow. No. It's so important that she was... Yes, absolutely. And it, it's lovely to go to the Shakespeare um, Institute and that's where the archive is that I go yes. look at and I think I'm in her house. How cool is this? I was going to ask you about that because <laughs> I know you wrote a blog post for Baths yes, for the I Victorianists. Yes, I did. Um, I went for the day with um, Sarah and Anne-Marie, my supervisors, who are just wonderful. And we went and had yes. a look at the, um, the Birthplace Trust archive and then we went off to Mason Croft. And it's just that moment where you see her handwriting. I'm sure you must feel the same. Yes. It's just, it kind of chokes you up when you look at something and you know that that's something that she touched and it's her handwriting. And yeah, it gets you quite emotional. And we went to see her grave as well, which has been recently restored. And that's beautiful. Absolutely lovely. So yeah, it was a cold winter day. Not, not too dissimilar to today, actually. And we had a lovely time walking around Stratford-upon-Avon and... Yeah, sounds lovely. Nice day out of the office. I'm, I'm biased, but I also think Sarah and Amory are great people. <laughs> they are, I'm very fortunate. Yes, we shared two supervisors. We so. do, we do, we do, which is how we came to know each other, which is yes. lovely. So, are there any more you know, stories like the stalker? And um, I'm trying to think. The kind of, what's the, what's the story that you would... If I'm being really cruel, you've got five it minutes. Would, it would, it would, I know, but it would have been the one with the blanket because I just oh, think that's, that's hilarious. It's um, fantastic, isn't it? I'm trying to think. I suppose if you think of a, there is a, the story again at the end of Ransom that I think very much illustrates Bertha and Marie. And I think there was they hosted a dance in their home for the town, and it was a daffodil dance. Everyone dressed up in yellow, and apart from Bertha, who wore her black stuff gown, yes. she was always one to do. And I think it's really a lovely image because Ransom says that everybody was dancing and they didn't. They just stood with their arms around each other, watching everyone oh. in their home. And actually, that makes me think about how they are because I think I said to you right at the beginning, I adore Bertha. She can do no yes. wrong as far as I'm concerned, and I've managed to obtain um, her proof copy of her her biography which is absolutely lovely and it's got her inserts of her the pictures that she wanted included some of them that weren't printed and um yeah i've got a real affection for bertha so yeah to think of them standing in their home and hosting all of these people yeah i think that's quite a lovely and image how much that's a kind of something they've done for the community to yes bring them enjoyment yes i mean did you read the end of the biography with ransom where she talks about bertha's legacy and it's quite sad really how bertha carries yeah. on after marie's died and how she tries to eke money out of the estate to keep the the servants going and it's quite it, it is isn't it's it? heartening i think yeah. and you think this woman's devoted her whole life to corelli and even to her dying day i just hope she didn't read that terrible biography by bullock that was sort of uh, i think it was two years before she died it was printed and again i think it's probably quite a lot of the fodder for brian masters it's not particularly yeah. nice about corelli but yeah I think I think you mentioned having um, Bertha's biography, and somehow I'd forgotten that it was the proof. That's yes. amazing. Yeah, I came across that. I was very fortunate, and I've also got poems as well. Um, that's a, a very early proof copy, and it's got a letter from Bertha in the front of it. So again, I know that was hers. So they're treasured things, treasured yes, possessions. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yes, I'm just thinking back to 
Which which volume is it that Sarah has? Uh... Sarah has Innocent, I think. Yes. His Fancy or Her Fact, and that's a signed copy. And that's how I ended up having her as my supervisor. I cheekily messaged her on Twitter and said, that looks interesting. And we sort, yes. of, sort of struck up a conversation and I asked if she was interested in supervising a PhD on Corelli, and luckily she was. Because that is, I mean, that, that book is probably top of my to-be-read once the thesis is finished list, because I have a copy, but it's not yes. signed. No, because I think there's a printed signature in it, isn't there? But, it's, but yes. Sarah has Bertha's the copy, actual, and it yeah. says to, from we, we Arika, which again sort of signifies Corelli's baby talk and how she went about speaking, and I can really hear her voice when, when you read that, and it says to my best beloved Burr or something, yes, isn't it? So, yeah, fascinating. Absolutely. But she's a lucky girl having that. She is. I know she keeps it locked away from us in her office. We're not allowed to touch no. it, are we? So. <laughs> I think we get too excited. <laughs> but yeah, because I picked up a copy of that and I was like, is this signed? But that's such an interesting marketing ploy as well to have the printed. It is. And I think you. I think it's in probably the birthday book you see the signature. But there's the monogram as well that um, Matthew and put on all of the books of MC, which again reflects the mantelpiece at Mason Croft. But yeah, Corelli's signature is it's, it's almost like it would be trademarked today. You yes. quite often see it on things. But it's quite distinctive as well, isn't it? But also quite yeah. Dickensian, you know, that sort of... It's very reminiscent. <laughs> it is, in a lot of ways, very reminiscent of Dickens's signature. Yeah, she, I get it's, the feeling she practised that to make it yeah. look as good as it did. I mean, it's a little bit more legible than most of Dickens's work. Yes. But. yes. Yeah. But that is such a fa fascinating... Um, so would it be a lot of her, obviously the birthday book is really interesting because it, instead of saying in all type the Marie Corelli, Marie Corelli birthday book it has her name in her handwriting yes I wonder if there's anything on her actual birthday we should check May 1st shouldn't we Ooh, that's <laughs> yeah, look, yes we really should it'd be quite telling to see what was put on May 1st wouldn't it Not really thought this could be it no and there's someone whose birthday is there. There's three quotes that's there's three <laughs> quotes all from Ardath a genius such as the earth sees but once in a century she reads human nature as read, one reads an open scroll. Out of all the exquisite symbols of heaven offered to us on earth, music, I think, is the grandest and best. Mm. So the first two, I think, really are... And again, music, of course, because that was yeah. the career she tried and wasn't quite successful. Of in. course. I thought your discussion about her improvisation was absolutely brilliant. It's, it's quite odd to think of her going visiting people's homes, <laughs> isn't it? And coming up with something based on... It just seems such a bizarre premise of... Yeah. But it obviously and, was a thing. I didn't yeah. realise it was a thing until I read it. To, to be able to put something together, I suppose you must know chords and be able to yes, already put imagined pieces together. But yeah, she must have been talented. And wasn't she singing as, along with it, or was she just playing? I think you mentioned she probably wasn't such a great singer. I think she was yes. probably a better pianist than she was a singer. But again, it's that sense as well. I think Brian Masters talks about her being impoverished and lower class, and she most certainly wasn't. If her yeah. choices of career were going out there performing music in homes, poetry and writing, I think you can safely say that she was of a certain class. Yes. Wouldn't you agree? I think yeah, absolutely. And how many it servants they had as well. And yeah. I think you spoke very well about um, how much money, again, had passed, been passed on in McKay's will. So obviously they weren't impoverished. There was certainly an amount of money there, whether that was tied up in property. Yes, because that's something that really puzzled us because yeah. they've been scrimping and saving yeah. to make a living and then McKay leaves several thousand pounds. Mm. Yeah, I've, it must have been tied up in property or investments or I'm, I'm, it just seems bewildering to me and I felt exactly the same as you when I read it. I thought that was an odd amount. Yeah. And obviously Corelli had to go and make a living, there's no doubt about it, but it's just intriguing to think that they were her options. <laughs> yeah, because I assume there might be some debt tied in with that mm. inheritance of you know yeah. actual capital yeah but it's... again having a, a father or a grandfather or a stepfather or uncle or whatever he was being McKay yeah and again I mean, related in some minor way to 
sort of the aristocracy. Yes. Well, he certainly wasn't lowly. It wasn't lowly origins, and I think we need to remember that as well, you know, when we talk about them being impoverished. And even Bertha, towards the end, looking after Mason Croft, there was a substantial amount of servants and people that were looking after the household. So they had nurses and obviously cleaners and gardeners, the gardener who was the gondola. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, I was going to say something, I forgot. <laughs> this is a worryingly common thing. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I mean, we talked right at the start about the construction of her relationship with McKay. Yes. But obviously at times she's really keen to play down that. And at times she... For her advantage, yes. Because yes. I think you've, again, it's something when you read the correspondence with Bentley, isn't it? Oh, no, actually, I think it's earlier than that. It's Blackwood. So she yes. starts off with Blackwood's basically saying, oh, here's a piece, you don't know who I am. And she's just writing off, that doesn't work. So then she tries inventing a name, that doesn't work. So then she tries nepotism, and unfortunately, that doesn't work. And then when she sends um, McKay's poems off after he's died, they go to Blackwood's. It's almost like that's a preserve that she's just excluded from. And she's tried all of those ways. And it's quite it must be disheartening for her, because if you yes. tried all of those avenues, and even nepotism doesn't work. Um, and of course it was Clement, who's the editor of the theatre, it was Clement Short I think if I remember rightly that was the editor of the theatre that published her poems initially and then sort of got her foot in the door and then Temple Bar as you mentioned yes. published that amazing article on the Shell Grotto down in Margate, it's a brilliant, yes. it's a travel article, it's come along and have a look at something, have you ever been? No, it, I haven't. It's a Victorian wonder of the world. It really is. I think she calls it something like one of the wonders of the world. It's sort of below um, Margate, and it's you can go and visit it, and it's literally shells all over this whole grotto. It's dark, and it's lit, and it's absolutely amazing. don't know if it's open all year round, but yeah, it must have been a real oh. Victorian attraction. She wrote on it. That'll be on the list for summer. There's <laughs> a good fairground down there. Yeah, it'd be worthwhile visiting. But yeah, because at what point doesn't she say... There's one letter she writes where she says, I don't know, McKay or any member of the McKay family. Is that's that to do with Eric. Eric? She's, yes. trying, she's trying to get Eric submitted, and I think it's almost that disassociation that's necessary because it's so very poor. But um, the one thing that I want to look into more is McKay's Egyptian novel. Did you see that? That he'd written a, no. a novel about Egypt, and it was almost in the style of Corelli, and it was towards the end of his life, and I'm just intrigued as to what the content of that would be. It was published anonymously, um, but it, again, you can find it on archive.org. Um, it'd be interesting to see how similar it was to one of Corelli's plots. Yes. That would be a really interesting thing to run through, a kind of stylometry <laughs> yes. programme. Yes, it would, yeah, because of course you love all your digital humanities. Yes. Yeah, it would be really good Big to fun. see whether there was um, yeah, sort of similarities in phrasing and whether it was yeah. actually all McKay's own work or whether it was something else. Of course, we could test love letters of a violinist, but it doesn't take a, a computer programme to know that they're Eric's and not Marie's. Yes. <laughs> Let's just take someone with basic literacy. <laughs> yes, they are quite terrible. Um, I mean... I don't know, we've already spoken about our mutual dislike of Eric. Yes. Quite at legs. Yes. Um, I don't think I've got anything. I think I've showed you everything I've done from the computer, yes. Yeah, I've got... Is that enough? Yeah, I mean, we've got about 55 minutes so far with the, the intro songs about three minutes and we try to keep them to less than an hour, so... Is that right? That's yeah. perfect, that yeah. All right. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for talking to me, Joe. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's lovely, and I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to you both chatting away about Marie Corelli. It's so lovely when it's something I'm immersed in every single day to hear two people getting enthusiastic and speaking about her. So long may your work continue. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you didn't, you know, I know so much about this and you've got so much wrong. <laughs> no, you really didn't. You covered her faithfully and really well. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, thank you again for coming in and for giving me one of your copies of Ransom's biography because that was really <laughs> helpful. Um, and helped me read that and make slightly deranged notes on a nine-hour transatlantic flight. I knew it would come in handy. That's great. But yes, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell.
The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. The music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archives. <laughs>